When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Everybody to a new interview at No Books Network. I am Carmen Gomez Galisteo, and I have today the pleasure to have here with me Jennifer Smith, who is the author of a very interesting book, Women, Mysticism, and Historia in Find the Sick Spain, that was published by Vanderbilt University Press and which came out in 2021. So, welcome, Jennifer, and thank you very much for being with us here today. Thank you, Carmen, for having me and for your interest in my book. Uh, it's a pleasure to speak with you today. It, it is all my pleasure finally to 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 get to 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 talk to to the author, which is something that normally we we don't do when we read a, a book. So it is it is wonderful. Thank you very much. So uh, can you please tell our listeners what your book is about? So uh, my book uh, came from the question I had. Uh, so I guess maybe I should just say I'm, I'm a specialist in late 19th and early 20th century Spanish literature. And I was uh, intrigued by the question of why there was so much concern with the question of female mysticism at this period in Spain. Um, it's a concern in literary texts. It's concern, a concern in medical texts. Um, so that, that is sort of the question uh, my book uh, seeks to answer. And part of the answer to that question uh, is that mystics still remained uh, sort of a model uh, of alternative paths of female existence. Um, so both the church and society uh, viewed viewed them with suspicion. Um, and of course, an example of this, and, and Denise Dupont has written extensively on the question of uh, Santa Teresa, but there was this big debate in late 19th century Spain about whether Santa Teresa was really a hysteric, in other words, a sexual deviant, right, rather than uh, a great saint. So that would be an example of the cultural re-earthing these questions. Even though she'd been exonerated by the Inquisition, now medical doctors in 19th century Spain are gonna look to her again. So clearly these women served as models, as alternative uh, uh, 
ways of being a woman in modern society. The other, it's also part of a larger attempt at the time to use science to uh, sexualize and pathologize any type of uh, gender deviance that uh, seems to be a threat to society. So, you know, this is a period where the Catholic Church is losing ground, science is gaining ground, and um, so what was previously defined as sin by the Catholic Church is now being uh, defined as disease or pathology by the scientific community. So in general, women are being subjected to all kinds of discourses on sexuality that argue that if they do anything outside of marriage and motherhood, they are hysterics or nymphomaniacs or other uh, classifications that were deemed uh, undesirable at the time. So something that you that you mentioned in your book is that the 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 concept of, of race at, at this time uh, that it was much more complex and difficult to define than gender or or, or class and this is something that had been going on for several centuries in, in Spain where uh, rather than having a Spanish nationality you have like Catholics and you have a uh, Jewish and you have uh, Muslim people so how how was race understood at, at this time at this moment in, in Spain. Um, so what I, I write about in, uh, in regard to questions of race in the book is I base primarily on um, Joshua Good's uh, research on this topic. But this was a time where there is also uh, a, a revived interest in, in race in the scientific realm. And it, at the time, in other European countries, uh, uh, the nations were concerned with proving their Aryan uh, roots, right? But Spain, in contrast, was um, actually celebrating its racial mixture and its Semitic roots. So it was different in that regard. But instead, what the Spanish people were trying to do was saying that to be part of the Spanish raza uh, was more of a cultural uh, identity, that, that Spaniards had some kind of inherent cultural similarities um, that made them Spanish. Um, you know, a Catholicism was part of that too. So it wasn't so much the color of your skin or the shape of your nose, but um, how you conformed to a particular ideal, met, which made you part of the Spanish raza. So that's very different than how we think of race today. However, there was a dark side to that too, because even though it seems much more inclusive, and in fact, part of the, 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 the motivation for this new concept of race was to try to bring unity to a Spain that was indeed fractured by class and regionalism, to say we're all Spaniards uh, by race. Um, at the same time, anyone who fell outside of the Spanish ideal, again, because they were deviants or degenerates, um, were viewed as a threat to the Spanish race, uh, as, as, as a, a potential pathogen that could weaken the Spanish body. So, so even though it seems like a much more inclusive concept, it, it had its dark side as well. Yeah, and finally, it was very, very important because just a few years later, with the civil war, the dictatorship, again, the uh, the idea of race, la raza, was given a, a new meaning. So this is part of an ongoing debate. So it, it was really interesting to see how race worked at the, at the time. And so right. as to and see... 
I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, and it's interesting too because there's a lot of research now about how you know they believed that there was a red gene during the Spanish War, and they're discovering that you know they were hoping to eradicate. Again, it's this idea that race is not just physical characteristics, but somehow of inborn beliefs or whatever. And and there was this hope that they could eradicate you know political ideologies genetically. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And uh, in in their work, you combine medical works on hysteria and also literary works. Was it easy to combine both? Because uh, at first, it it looks to me that it has to be complicated. So um, actually, the time, it's much, the two discourses lend themselves to each other uh, easily at the time, because uh, naturalism, the father of naturalism, Emile Zola, Uh, define the naturalist novel specifically as a scientific experiment. And this has to do in part with the rise of science. So literature now wants to be science too. Um, So these novels are already very much influenced by uh, scientific rhetoric. But at the same time, with the new prominence of science, um, people, the the general reading public is also reading, quote unquote, science, or if you want to say pseudoscience in the form of hygiene manuals, particularly on questions of sexuality, um, which sometimes are written in very novelesque fashion. So you have two discourses that the reading public is familiar with, and both are are really influencing each other and dialoguing with each other. So in some ways, it was a very uh, uh, natural combination. So there was this big interest about uh, women and hysteria and uh, what their role was, and uh, and do you think that these that these ideas that they were that they were current at the time of women being inferior to men that that we see in these novels that you analyze, do you think that they created tension in in the country because at, at the time the, 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 there was a, a female queen and having a female monarch uh, had only been achieved after uh, changes in the legislation. There was also a war uh, raging on because there were some who defended that it should be the queen's uncle as a male who should govern. So do do you think that, how do you think everything work in, with these ideas about women, about hysteria, about mysticism, and then having a female monarch? Yeah, so that's that's an excellent question. So I opened the book uh, in the introduction talking about Sor Patrocinio, who of course was a member of uh, Isabel uh, II's court. And um, her portrayal in uh, the pornographic collection Borbones and Pelota. So um, I use it as an example of the way uh, religious, powerful religious women continued to be sexualized uh, in order to discredit them. However, um, the actual protagonist of Borbones and Pelota is Isabel II, who uh, uh, appears in more uh, of the pornographic uh, watercolor images than Sor Patrocinio. Um, and this was very much like what they did to Marie Antoinette. In other words, it's it's an attempt to discredit women by showing them... Uh, essentially saying they're nymphomaniacs and sexual deviants. And uh, because, of course, that always falls harder on women than it does on men. You can discredit men through sexual acts, but but for women, it's, it's a bigger discredit. Um, so I think you're seeing the same thing happening to Isabel uh, II. She is uh, being discredited also through the sexual realm. And one of the images I include in the book is, is an image of Sor Patrocinio. And 
uh, Isabel in bed together with a severed penis on the ground. And I think that image is very um, important because it's saying these women are a threat to society and it's suggesting that female power uh, is castrating. It's castrating to the Spanish nation. And also at, at a time, there were many books saying that the best path for a woman was to be celibate. But then uh, there were others who said that this may cause mental problems and, <coughs> sorry about that, and they advised marriage. So our religious life as a nun, as a priest, was praiseworthy, especially for women. But how were both views reconciled? So um, I, I would say, I mean, in the religious community, I, I think uh, nuns continued to be held in high esteem. But uh, yeah, in the general more secular rise, I don't want to say secular because I don't think Spain was secular at all completely, but the more secular uh, elements of society, I don't think it is reconciled. I think that, and and that's the issue here, um, is this interest in discrediting all forms of religious expression in women and particularly anything that involves uh, celibacy. In other words, any role a woman assumes that doesn't involve procreation is is bad uh, for her. So, so there is this conflict here because it feels like an attack on the church. And there are other more um, mainstream hygienists like Felipe Monlao who do make exec exceptions uh, for celibacy in the, in the case, at least of priests. I can't remember nuns. So, I mean, I guess it depends on, you know, the degree to which Um, these doctors and scientists uh, espouse the church, but for some, it was not, you could not reconcile it at all. And that's why um, in works like Lopez Pagos La Monja, you see that uh, these nuns are all sexual deviants. And then, for instance, there was uh, this writer to whom you devote a chapter, Emilia Pardo Bazan, and she was a woman, and she was a professional because she was a writer, and she was educated, and she was separated from her husband and engaging in, in, in affairs with, with, other, with other men. So how did she fit into society, in this society that the only path for women was to get married, but she was a writer? Do, do, do you think that she had more freedom than other women because of her profession or her social standing? Well, so I guess to the first question, I would say she didn't fit in. Um, she was attacked all the time, um, constantly, uh, you know, subject to vitriol, uh, harsh criticism, unfavorable caricatures. And I guess uh, that's one of the reasons I find her such an interesting figure to study is I don't know how... Um, someone can be that strong uh, to tolerate so much, <laughs> so much uh, personal attack, but yet know that the path they're pursuing is correct. That said, yes, she was in a position of privilege. Um, she was not divorced from her husband because divorce was not legal, but they separated early on when he told her she uh, needed to stop writing, which she refused to do. Um, and, you know, she came from money and her mother helped her take care of her children, which, uh, and I'm sure she had servants and whatnot, which allowed her to travel, uh, to engage in, um, 
you know, all kinds of intellectual activities. And one of the big things that's cited as, as the reason for her self-confidence and belief in herself was the support of her father when she was a young girl. He, he uh, strongly believed that uh, women had an equal right to education as men and, you know, let her have free access to his library and instilled that belief in her. And it seems to have uh, fed a very healthy self-esteem in adulthood that allowed her um, you know, to do what she did. But as an example of her not being accepted, I, I don't know the year, but she was finally allowed to teach a course um, at, in, the, I think it was the Complutense, I can't remember off the top of my head, University of Madrid, and the course was boycotted, despite her having, you know, written as much or more than the greatest authors ever. Um, but people were not okay with a woman teaching in the university. So, um you know, she had to deal with a lot of disappointment in her life. And I would say she did not fit in, but obviously she had uh, friends um, and intellectual companions who supported her and made the, her fight uh, worthwhile. Yeah. And also, for instance, she was trying to get into the Real Academia Española and, also, and, yeah. and she was rejected twice or three times. So even though yes, she yeah. mm-hmm. even though she was also a well-known writer and and, and, and everything. You were mentioning before uh, Lope de Vago. And um, how are women in, in her novels uh, different from the women in the novels by male authors like Lope de Vago or Leopoldo Alas Clarín? Because these, these authors uh, offer a rather negative view of, of, of women and, and chastity and, and even nuns they were very negatively portrayed by Lope de Bajo. So how are the women in Pardo Bazan's novels and how are they different? Well, I mean, to give I'll give one concrete example between Alas and Pardo Bazan, who initially were friends but became uh, <laughs> enemies uh, not, not for the rest of their lives pretty much. Um, but, you know, in, in La Regenta, Alas creates, which, you know, is one of, in my opinion, one of the best novels in the Spanish language, but he creates a protagonist that's very much in keeping with other 19th century novels. It's a woman who gives into adultery because she's bored with, unsatisfied, uh, with her marriage and bored with her life. And, uh, she pays, a price for that. She's totally shunned by society. So she's a character that is very much like other protagonists of this female protagonist, like Anna Karenina, who throws herself under a train for committing adultery, or Madame Bovary, who um, kills herself by taking arsenic. But in part of the Bazan wrote a novel called Insolacion, in which the woman technically doesn't commit adultery because she's a widow, but Um, she chooses to have uh, a sexual relationship with somebody outside of wedlock, which of course society shuns, and nothing happens to her. So a lot of people have read that novel as part of the Bathan's answer to, to Alas on that question, that why shouldn't a woman be able to have a sexual relationship, particularly if they are not in a marriage? Uh, why do they have to suffer some kind of horrible consequence, right? And the interesting thing there is that uh, everyone called part of the Bathan's novel, well, not everyone, but many of the male authors called the novel immoral because the, the protagonist didn't suffer. And it's very ironic because, uh, you know, La Regenta is often considered one of the most erotic novels ever written in the Spanish language, 
but because his heroine suffers at the end, therefore it's moral. <laughs> so, so that's one example. Um, Jen, also speaking, you know, most, most to me, Pardo Bathan's most feminist uh, works are her short stories. And there um, you frequently see women uh, as victims of society of patriarchy. Sometimes the women manage, the female characters manage to find a way to get revenge or, or to find their independence. Sometimes they're brutally murdered. Um, but, but to me, in those works, the, the, the problem is always society, not the woman. Whereas I think in Alice's works, and Alice has been often referred to as, uh, you know, a misogynist as well, it's not so much. It's the protagonist is is part of the problem too for not being able to conform to the role society gives. So I, I would say that's the big difference. Lopez Bago, um, uh, he, he was more a popular uh, writer. His characters aren't really as fully developed. They're intended more to pr- like as pieces of a story to make a point. Um, so I would say his female characters are all body, no psychology. And in, in his novels, essentially, you know, if they don't get married and procreate in the way um, they are naturally supposed to, then they suffer all sorts of physical uh, ailments and, and die. So, <laughs> so uh, it's a much more simplistic uh, uh, take, but his, his female characters uh, really lack any depth, whereas Alice's characters certainly have, female characters certainly have depth, but nevertheless, they're seen as worthy of punishment. Yeah, um, and well, now uh, Pardo Bazan is continue is, is still red, and La Regenta is still red. But when Lopez Bago really has has fallen out of popularity, I don't know, maybe because of this pornographic cut or or or, or, or whatever. And um, do you think that uh, Pardo Bazan's novels have a great influence on on the public or on public views on, on women's role at the time? Because novel reading was something that was discouraged for for women, and also there was a large part of uh, the Spanish population, especially women who, who were illiterate at, at the time? Yeah, so that's a good question. I mean, I would have to say she was part, she was a main figure uh, in, in part of the dominant cultural intellectual debate amongst the reading public. So those who could read probably at least knew who she was. Um, because she not only wrote novels and short stories, but she wrote journalistic pieces, you know, that appeared in the peri- periodicals like La Ilustración Artística. So I would think amongst the upper upper classes, she was a household name, whether they thought positively or negatively of her. Um, and probably they read her. But yes, for the non-reading public, uh, it would be very hard for me to gauge uh, whether she um, had any any influence there. I mean, all I could say is that, you know, whatever cultural changes happened, and, and cultural changes did happen and happen, you know, particularly for the women's movement, not shortly, you know, around the time of her death, that's where we start to see feminism um, uh, getting more momentum. So um, I would imagine that these ideas were out there circulating. She contributed to this sort of marketplace of ideas, if you will. 
and that that eventually had uh, an effect in changing the culture. But obviously, it was not a direct effect of of the majority of women on the majority of women who could not read. Um, well, well, this is a little bit out of to- off. Uh, it is a little bit off topic because your your book is about, about the the end of the of the century. But how was uh, later on? Uh, how was she uh, uh, redefined or how was she reinterpreted? Because then uh, these ideas about women and notions um, a few years later with the dictatorship, everything was uh, upside down, and uh, well, uh, they they took quite a lot of interest in, in in her because the dictator's family actually moved into her. Her home as, as a family home, and they destroyed her diaries and, and, and many things. So, how, how was she uh, a few years later reinterpreted? So, yes, yeah, so that's an interesting question because there's a lot of debate, you know, about her because she was um, more uh, politically conservative. She aligned herself with Carlism for a while, and um, she, you know, she called herself a Catholic and was actually buried in uh, third order Franciscan robes. Um, she was also very interested in mysticism. That's why um, I, you know, I bring her into the the question too, but, but she was, and, and very much did not like uh, extreme leftist uh, ideologies like uh, anarchism and communism and socialism. She was not, a fan. That said, um, she was very much in favor of artistic freedom. She was very much opposed to uh, gender hierarchy. And one of the the big uh, interesting things that came out with this discovery of the first gay marriage in Spain between two women, one woman who passed as a man, is this essay she wrote in support <laughs> of them. Like, you know, that it's nobody's business, you know, who you marry. So, That kind of stuff would have not sat well uh, uh, with Franco. So I myself have always wondered, like, who would she have allied herself with in that Spanish, uh, in the Spanish Civil War? And an alliance with Franco does not seem uh, an easy fit. But I don't see her allying herself like with the more radical leftist movements either. So uh, once again, I would say she sort of falls outside. And even with her Catholicism, I mean, in some ways, Catholicism would line her up with a more conventional camp. But she was very interested in Catholicism specifically because of these female mystics who she viewed as sort of uh, proto-feminists, Um which is not something, you know, the majority of Catholics were turning to Catholicism for. Does I, I'm not sure. I can't remember what the original question was. I'm not sure if that answers. <laughs> yeah, 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 because, yeah, it, she wasn't like a very, as you say, she was not an easy fit in, in her times. Later on with the dictatorship, she was a focus of interest, but yeah, maybe as a bad woman or, or, or something. So she, she was still there, but she was very controversial alive or, or, or not. Yeah, so, so I, for example, I don't see her and Pilar Primo de Rivera getting along. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, and and, and, and and you know they they, they try to to destroy her, her writings and her diaries so that they were not published and, and and who knows what was there in 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 her home because they they appropriated it so so uh, I don't know if you want to to say anything else because uh, for me this is the the close of the of the interview and it's been wonderful oh um. Hmm. 
Um, I, I really don't have anything else. I, I just, uh, I really appreciate your taking the time to talk to me. And I do hope that my book is, that's one of the things being an academic, you never know, like you write this book, if anybody's going to read it. So I, I do hope my book has some appeal to a, a, a broader reading public, at least those interested in restoration, Spain, questions of gender, um, and then one or more of the three writers I study. Um, yeah, for, for, for me, it has been a pleasure because I enjoyed reading the book a lot and then having the, the chance to, to, to talk to you. It has been wonderful because it's something that we don't, we don't usually do. So thank you very much, uh, Jennifer, for being here to speak about women, mysticism and hysteria in Find the Sick Spain, published by Vanderbilt University Press. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you.